I remember back when I was in college, one of the programs that our school had was called CAP, or Character Award Program. This is a training wherein all students are required to get up at 6 a.m. to clean an assigned area in our campus. During my first few years doing CAP work, I remember being assigned to clean in different locations, the classrooms, the hallways, the library, the chapel, the admin office, the CRs, and so on, where the work required was to sweep the floor, to mop, to dust off and wipe the tables, the chairs, the windows, and sometimes we were asked to scrub the floor as well, depending on the instruction that were given for the day. During my third year, I was promoted to be one of the CAP supervisors, where I would be the one checking the work quality of the students to see if it is good and to make them do it again if it is not good enough. I remember one occasion where a student came in early. Yes, he swept the floor, he mopped, he dusted off and wiped the tables and chairs. However, at the end of the cap work, when we huddled, I lovingly asked the student to repeat. He was surprised and asked why. I said, yes, you did everything. You swept the floor, you mopped, you dusted off and wiped the tables and chairs, but you had not asked me what work we needed to do that day. Because that day, the work required was to soap and to scrub the floor. That morning, we learned the importance of knowing what is required and what is asked of us so that we won't have to waste energy, time, and effort, and more so, so that we could focus ourselves on what truly matters. Sometimes we also, both new and mature believers, are prone to unintentionally and unconsciously lose focus of what God requires of us. The danger is when we are not aware of what He requires of us. So the question is, what is it that God requires from His people? I believe it is important that we know the answer to this question so that we would be able to avoid the pain, the heartaches, and the disappointments brought about when we fail to recognize what God requires from us so that we would not waste efforts, our time, our valuable resources and energy doing things that God did not ask us to do, and so that we can focus ourselves in a way that lives up to God's requirements of us. What is it that God requires from His people? This morning, we will study the book of Micah, or Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, and discover what it is that God requires from His people in our text, we will also see what God does not want from His people. These can be the lies of Satan that some of us might be holding on to. Micah was one of the Old Testament prophets called by God to speak to the people of God on His behalf, on God's behalf. He was speaking to the Israelites which were experiencing the height of their wealth and powers during that time. But along with their wealth and powers came also the rise of social evils and injustices in which God's people, Israel and Judah, have become accustomed to and have welcomed these together with the decline of their moral and spiritual standards before God. They were not in a good condition before God, and God was angry with His people because He could not tolerate such evil from them. They were supposed to be different. They were supposed to reflect their special relationship and identity as God's chosen people. Yet, in the book of Micah, we will see in the, cha in the other chapters how they have turned selfish, how they have coveted and cheated others of their lands and properties. And not only that, how they did evil things. They stole from the poor. They took advantage of others and made profit of them. They engaged in illegal, immoral, and deceitful business practices. They were idolatrous, greedy, materialistic, abusive, and unjust in how they treat others, especially the lowly and less fortunate 
and they have become hypocritical in their worship towards God. As a warning to them, God interrupted and spoke to them through Micah that because of their continuous sins and wickedness, God would use Assyria to invade and destroy them as a form of judgment from God. Micah was called to expose and to speak against those evils and the sins that were rampant among God's people during their time. Perhaps if it were in our time today, it is like our Christian believers, our brothers who identify themselves as followers of God, but they live in direct disobedience, violence, cruelty, dishonesty, and immorality. Perhaps you see them on Sunday for worship, but Monday to Saturday, you also see them involved in illegal, immoral. They are rude, disrespectful, evil practices, and behaviors. Perhaps these are those who, at the church, they appear holy and spiritual. But when they get home and they get to their businesses, they throw away their spirituality and they act like they have no God. They mistreat their housemates, their employees, their workers. The rich, they treat well. The poor, they mistreat. Perhaps when they are with the pastor, they act good and well and respectful. They recite Bible verses, but when the pastor is gone, the verses become curses. They may be so actively serving in many ministries, involved in all life groups, attending all Bible studies and church activities, passionate in singing praises to God, wearing t-shirts that have Bible verses and, and even the cross, yet once they step out of the four corners of our church, they, they live totally different lives and they are not alarmed at all. God has called Micah to expose this disconnection in the people's spirituality and their daily lifestyle. We will see in the next few verses of our text that it feels like a courtroom drama where God makes an accusation, a charge against His people. And it is in this scenario that Micah writes our text today. Micah chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it says, Hear now what the Lord says, Arise and plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against His people, and He will contend with Israel. Micah begins by calling the attention of God's people. He says, Hear now. Listen with undivided attention because he is about to say something important. More importantly, they are to listen because it is the word of the Lord, not Micah's personal message that he is about to speak and, the, and that which the people are to seriously listen to. It is a confrontation that we don't want to experience in our lives. We don't want the Lord having something against us because for sure he is right and we are wrong especially when he starts calling on the mountains and the hills as as the witnesses in verses 1 and 2 he personifies them and they serve as his inanimate witnesses present unchanging unbiased and which have silently witnessed everything that transpired in that place you know like cctvs they would have been credible references to substantiate God's claims. God also calls on the hills, the strong foundations of the earth, which were present since the very beginning, to hear His rightful complaints against His people, as if they have ears to hear. I'm sure if they could speak, they would surely agree and affirm what the Lord says. Like, probably they shout, Amen, Amen after every statement of the Lord. Like CCTVs, they would have given undeniable proofs because they would have seen the injustices, the cruelty, 
the greed, the idolatry that the people of Israel are guilty of beyond reasonable doubt. Verse 3, God continues, O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. God begins by asking them a rhetorical question, expressing the obvious. How have I wronged you? What have I done to you? Answer me. He was asking the Israelites to present their evidence or reasons against him as to why they would turn away, do such evil, and be unfaithful to God. We know the obvious answer to this is none. Because other than being loving, gracious, and merciful and good to you, what else has God done to you? You know, truth be told, when we look back, there is nothing that God has done at any time that would have caused His people or anyone to become disobedient and unfaithful towards Him. God continues His argument against them, How have I wearied you? Did I ask too much from you? Did God make our lives difficult? Did He cause us any trouble? This, I believe, even today, is a wrong impression about God and the Christian life. As if God makes our life harder. You know, perhaps that's your idea of God as well. A killjoy. Too many rules. Not fun. He is boring. He is only for the old people. Ancient and irrelevant to our time today. Why would God want us to be free from immorality, you might ask? To remain pure. Does He not know that it's 2021 already? Why are we not allowed to have sex before marriage? Why are we not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to covet, not to treat, uh, and to treat others with respect? Why are we to remain humble, to serve others, to forgive others, to love our enemies, to be different and countercultural. Sometimes we feel as if God demands too much from us as well. God did not make the lives of the Israelites harder. If He were, He would not have done to them four gracious and mighty acts, which He reminds them to show them His unfailing faithfulness to them throughout all generations. Evidence number one, God redeemed them from slavery. Verse four, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage. God, you know, God brings to their remembrance the first evidence of His faithfulness to them a historical event that all of them are surely familiar with. That is when He redeemed them out of slavery in the land of Egypt. This redemption was an undeniable demonstration of God's great love, power, and care for His people. They used to be slaves. They were in bondage. They were abused until God came and brought them up and rescued them from captivity. Moreover, God says in verse 4, And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, which serves as his second evidence of his faithfulness. God provided them with capable leaders. In addition to God redeeming them from slavery in Egypt, he also mentions the names of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, whom God sent to provide wise guidance and godly leadership to the people of Israel. It was as if to say that God's eyes were on them. I did not forget you. He was looking after them to make sure that they were guided well and that they are doing good. When they look back carefully, they should be able to see traces of God's gracious and good hand all throughout their history. But the sad reality is something that we want to avoid even today is many times we tend to easily forget God 
and forget what He has done. This, I believe, is one of the greatest and the subtlest ways that Satan uses to lead us away from God. This is what I believe happened to God's people. God saved them, and then they forgot God. Together with God's intentions, plans, and desires for them, they forgot. But even in spite of their forgetfulness, God remains faithful. He continues with the third evidence of his faithfulness in verse 5. He says, O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. His third evidence, God protected them from curse. The Lord continues by presenting his third evidence. He reminds them of the incident concerning Balak, king of Moab, and Balaam. What happened was Balak, according to Numbers 22, planned to hire a prophet or to hire the prophet named Balaam to bring curses to the people of God. Balaam was willing, but God intervened and did not allow him to pronounce a curse towards Israel. A curse during those times were crucial. When a prophet delivers a curse, it meant that God's favor, presence, and blessings were no longer with them. Balak wanted Balaam to bring a curse upon Israel, but God intervened, and instead of a curse, God gave Balaam a message of blessings, which Balaam then declared to the people of Israel. God protected them from curses, and instead of curses, God gave them blessings. How can they not remember this mighty act of God in protecting them? God continues in verse 5, From Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Here's evidence number four from God. God led them into the promised land. God brings to mind two key places which were very memorable to His people, Acacia and Gilgal. The reference to these two places can be found when you read Joshua chapter 2 to 5, where you will realize that Acacia was the last place before entering the promised land and Gilgal was the first camp in the promised land and in between these two places was the Jordan River. What was God alluding to? He was reminding them of the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River, which would not have been possible if God had not miraculously parted the raging waters of the Jordan River so that His people, the Israelites, could cross over safely on dry ground and into the Promised Land. If not for God saving them, they would have remained as slaves, hopeless and mistreated. Notice the four evidences that God mentioned. His redemption, His provision, His protection, and then His guidance into the promised land seem to cover everything that we need and are looking for in life. Salvation, provision, protection, and leading into the promised land. He seems to imply to His people that He is more than able to provide whatever we need to live because He is faithful and reliable. If God is good and faithful, then there should be no need for His people, the Israelites and us, to be selfish and to be greedy. There is no need for us to take advantage of others, no need to cheat, and to lie for personal gain. No need to get involved in illegal, immoral, and deceitful ways. No need to try our own solution in ways instead of upholding God's righteous ways. Why? Because we can trust and rely on God. It was as if God was saying, if He has been faithful and true to His people, then why can't they try their best to trust Him and to live faithfully according to His ways?
as I was studying this text, all I could say to the Lord was, I agree with the Lord. I know this very well because I myself, even as a pastor, would sometimes forget God and His faithfulness to me. And I would sometimes throw my own tantrums at Him. I remember before in my immaturity, I was asking God for something and my condition to the Lord was, Lord, grant my request or else, bahala ka, you will speak at your church. Or sometimes, if God does not give me what I want, I will threaten Him as if I'm powerful enough. I will not serve you. I will ignore you. Lord, give me this or else you will lose a volunteer in me. I realized how foolish and immature I was to do something like that to God because it only revealed my heart and it showed that I have forgotten how God had saved me from sin and have given me a new life. Instead of remembering God's goodness and being grateful towards Him, I have become demanding and feeling entitled. Sometimes when life is smoothly ongoing and successes surround us, and we are, or sometimes when we are overwhelmed with the pressures and happenings of life, we tend to unintentionally forget God. This seems to be the case for the Israelites in Micah chapter 6. They have forgotten God and they have set Him aside in their lives. They seem to have forgotten where they came from and the very purpose for why God would work mightily even in impossible circumstances. That is, so that they would know the righteousness of the Lord in verse 5. What does this mean? God did these mighty acts so that the people of Israel would know the living God, not only academically or mentally, but by experience. They would know and recognize the faithful, that the faithful and sovereign God is active, alive, and faithful and reliable. These miraculous works of the Lord were supposed to point them to the living God and it should have led them to a life-transforming knowledge of God. It was supposed to move them to an increased faithfulness to God, to be more trusting, loving, and obedient to the Lord since they know that the God they live for is truly living and reliable. Friends, let us continue to try our best to remember God, His goodness in our lives so that we will not slip into forgetfulness. Never forget what God has brought us through and do not let the abundance of God's gifts cause us to forget Him. Before we discover what God requires from us, let us first look at the response of His people and we will see what God does not want from His people. When God confronts you and reminds you of His faithfulness to you and challenges you, why aren't you living for Him? What would your response be? Look at the response of the Israelites in verse 6. They said, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? In this section, we will see the lack of maturity and the ignorance of the Israelites with regards to what God requires of His people. They ask the question, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High God? What item, what offering does God need? Notice how they were focused on the ritual or of bringing something to the Lord. With what? Perhaps they thought that the solution to their unfaithfulness and their disobedience was to bring something of value to the Lord, as if God would be bought with their materialistic offerings. While their question may sound spiritual and sincere, we will later on discover that the offerings 
and the religious rites that they were thinking of were not what God had required of them because they were making a religious offering at the expense of their own faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. They failed to realize that to God, our outward religious rituals don't mean anything when our heart is not right before Him. Our outward religious rituals don't mean anything when our heart is not right before Him. God is not impressed with our money, service, our attendance when our heart does not express loyalty to Him. Growing up, I also thought similarly that as long as I go to church on Sundays, I'm already okay. As long as I pray to God before I eat or before I sleep, I'm okay. And that it doesn't matter anymore how I live my life. My behavior at home, at school, or anywhere. I can fail. I can speak bad words. I can be irresponsible in my schooling, be absent all the time, disobey my parents, be rude to others, cut classes, do illegal things. I could lie. I could steal, I could cheat others, I could be greedy. As long as I go to church, I thought, that's okay already. God is satisfied. But I was wrong. We will notice in this section the various proposals which the people of Israel suggested. We will discover later on that these proposals were extravagant and they were meant to make up or to cover up for their shortcomings before the Lord, and it comes at the expense of their own obedience to God. What God does not want, number one, religious rituals that come from an unrepentant heart. Verse 6, Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? The first proposal is to bring God calves a year old as burnt offerings. We can read in the book of Leviticus chapter 22 that the calves that they could offer as sacrifice to the Lord must be male without defect and as young as seven to eight days old. Meaning to say, if calves are a year older, a year old, it means that it has been fed, nurtured, and taken care for a greater amount of time and this is the thus more valuable. According to Leviticus, a year-old calf is the best sacrifice that one could offer to the Lord. Perhaps they think that if, if this is what God has prescribed for burnt offerings as a religious ritual or a ceremony, then He would definitely accept this. Back then, burnt offerings were one of the temple rituals that God had instructed His people to make. It was a way for God's people to temporarily pay for their sins and to show their faith, devotion, and trust in the Lord. But without a sincere and unrepentant heart before the Lord, this burnt offering, no matter how much or how best it is, falls valueless and meaningless. But look at how they level it up in verse 7. Verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? And we see what God does not want. Number two, it is expensive sacrifices that come with compromise. If God is not amused with year-old calves, why not level it up? God required one, but if one is not enough, why don't we escalate it and increase the quantity? Perhaps the Lord will be pleased and He will accept this one because it is too much. Who wouldn't want such large substantial quantities of unblemished rams and high-grade oil which were expensive during those times? Perhaps the, the people were thinking that this extravagant 
one-time, big-time, expensive offering would be enough to please the Lord since God only wanted one. But we will give him 1,000 or 10,000 which, which, which should surely be good to him. But again, there seems to be no indication of a heart and a lifestyle change. Our offerings, material or monetary, cannot compensate for our lack of obedience towards God. We cannot buy God and make Him agree with our sinful ways just because we give Him so much offerings. He would be more interested in our daily efforts to obey Him no matter how imperfect rather than a once-a-week extravagant, loud worship offerings. Besides, how much would be enough for the weekly sins we've committed? Maybe for us, yes, we are amused, but for God, He cannot be bought. In fact, when you think you can bribe God and use expensive offerings to justify our sinful living, don't we think that it is actually an insult to his holy and righteous character? Truth be told, and shocking as it may sound, God does not need our offerings. He does not need our money. Psalm 24 verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and its fullness thereof. He owns everything, including your possessions, your wallet, and even your life. People might be wowed whenever one gives 10 million to the church or donate a building or something. Those are not wrong, by the way, because God could also be pleased and glorified with those, but only if it is offered with the right heart. Not because the Lord needs our money, not also grudgingly, but as an expression of a joyful and grateful heart because we recognize God's bountiful blessings and goodness upon us. I'm glad in our church, it doesn't matter if you offer 10 million or zero to the church. We believe that as long as your heart is right before the Lord, money and financial status don't matter. Everyone is given equal chance to serve the Lord and to lead and what is important for our church is people who have the right heart before the Lord. That is what I believe the people of Israel have failed to realize in this section. Verse 7b, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What God does not want, number three, worship that is not done according to God's ways. As they continue to think about what to offer the Lord in light of the Lord's complaints, we notice the progression in their proposal. From year-old calves to thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil to now the height of their proposals, one's own firstborn. As payment for one's transgressions and the sins of one's soul. Which refers to living in a way that disregards God's presence and lordship. It is a lifestyle that is contrary to God and His ways. It is interesting that they were willing to go to this extreme of sacrificing their very own child just so they could seemingly pay for their sins and get away from God's anger. They may sound pious and extremely devoted to the Lord, but this comes as a direct defiance to God's ways. Child sacrifice was, was something that pagans practiced before their God. God had already condemned this practice in Leviticus, and yet His people were still offering this as an option. It might feel like that they were really pious and zealous before the Lord, but they were thinking about going to God, what God had already told them not to do. And that is not the way to honor God. It's like worshiping God, not in God's terms, 
but mine. Matthew chapter 15, verse 8 speaks well of this. It says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship in vain. Before, I thought as long as I worship God, no matter how I do it, I'm okay. Even if I come in late, I don't pay attention, I sleep during sermons, sometimes, you know, I go to church, but I would just stay outside, I would only eat outside, I would hang out with friends, I thought that's okay. And even more, now we can worship anytime at home. Some of us might have thought as long as I play the video to the end, even while not listening attentively, even when I double or triple the speed so that it will finish faster, even while I'm still on bed, half asleep, or sometimes to make me sleep, the pastor will not know or God will not know. While playing it side by side with my favorite movie or just play the sermon, the songs, and everything, while browsing through social media apps, I thought those were already good because I already attended worship service. I already worship God and God should be happy with me. Until one day, I asked myself, why am I here? And what am I doing? What is the purpose of me going to worship but not really having the right heart and not really intentionally worshiping God? When we worship God, we recognize His good work in our lives. It is not what we can bring or give to God so that we will be forgiven, but it is because we have already been forgiven that is why we bring something to God. We remember and celebrate God's love for us. We do what we do in worship, in the church, not so that we can impress God, but because we have experienced God's love for us and we, we, and we respond to Him out of a grateful and humble heart. This is how we ought to respond to Him and His goodness towards us. Our impact as God's people is not in the glamorous, expensive offerings we can give God. It is not in the Sunday attendance, the religious activities, the involvements, the Christian jargons, the terminologies, the many rituals that we can perform. But as we will see in our text this morning, it is in the way we live our lives as transformed chosen followers of God who have experienced God's unconditional love. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which, which is your reasonable service. Or in other translations, which is your act of worship. We have heard it many times, and it is right. Real faith manifests itself through our actions. This is what the Lord says to His people in verse 8. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? It summarizes in one verse what God requires of His people. There is to be a noticeable lifestyle difference for those who are God's people. A different lifestyle which Micah says is not something that was hidden or mysterious, but one that has already been revealed clearly. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What pleases the Lord and what God requires from His people has already been made plain and obvious. This, by the way, does not relate to our salvation, which is by grace through faith alone, in Jesus alone, 
But this, verse 8, relates to how we live out our faith as God's redeemed. In no way does this stress that we ought to be perfect individuals in everything, but only that we are, we are to try our best to live according to God's ways. Notice the word, but, which shows a contrast from the previous materialistic proposals made by the Israelites. Not that God does not want those offerings and sacrifices. Those are good if and only if it is done out of a right heart. But notice that it is not the material things that God wants from us. He is not after our possessions and finances. Rather, He wants a faithful and loyal heart that faithfully lives in His ways. In verse 8, there are three aspects that God asks us to live faithfully. And this is how we are to be different as God's people. What does God require of us? Number one, we are to live in righteousness. Do justly. The original word that was used for here comes from two words, justice and righteousness. And it carries the idea of treating others fairly and doing things, our business, right and straight. Remember in the previous chapters, God's people were the ones abusing, taking advantage of others. They were greedy and selfish, minding only their own welfare, and God is calling them to stop living in injustices and to start a right and fair treatment of others, to uphold righteous and honest and godly living. I'm sure it was difficult to live justly and righteously back then, since the norm, the acceptable culture those times were corrupt. And I'm sure it is no different in our culture today. But I believe that as followers of God here in our church, I believe that we are different. We try our best to live in honest, in just, and godly ways. Even if we can clearly get away with something and that people will not notice, they would not know, they would not realize, we won't. Because we try our best to live in a way not to impress people with our creative ways, with our connections, with our power, but here we live in a way that honors God. In addition to do justly, we also ought to be people known for loving mercy. Number two, we are to treat others with love and kindness. Love mercy. The idea is that God's people ought to show compassion, not just feeling compassion or pity towards someone, but feeling compassionate enough for others that it causes us to make an effort to do something. It is a compassion that leads us to action and an action that will meet other people's needs. Interestingly, the word that was used for mercy reflects the kind of mercy and kindness God showed His people. As God's people, we are called to show kindness and compassion to every human being regardless of social status, physical looks, color, race, work, circumstances. There should be no room in us for hate, rudeness, racism, jealousy, unkind spirit, malice, ill will, and every form of arrogance, pride, self-boasting, because those are incompatible with someone who follows God. Even when they do not share the same principle, the same values like us, even if they don't look like us, they don't sound like us, they don't smell like us, we are to be kind and compassionate and loving to the people that God brings to our lives. When a Nigerian billionaire, Femi Otedola, in a telephone interview, was asked, Sir, what can you remember made you the happiest man in life? 
he responded, I have gone through four stages of happiness in life and finally, I understood the meaning of true happiness. The first stage was to accumulate wealth and means, but at this stage, I did not get the happiness I wanted. Then came the second stage of collecting valuables and items, but I realized that the effect of this thing is also temporary and the luster of valuable things do not last long. Then came the third stage of getting big projects. That was when I was holding 95% of diesel supply in Nigeria and Africa. And I was also the largest vessel owner in Africa and Asia. But even here, I did not get the happiness I had imagined. The fourth stage was when a time a friend of mine asked me to buy wheelchairs for some disabled children, just about 200 kids. At the friend's request, I immediately bought the wheelchairs. But this friend of mine insisted that I go with him and hand over the wheelchairs to the children. I got ready and went with him, and there I gave these wheelchairs to these children with my own hands. I saw the strange glow of happiness on their faces, on the faces of these children, and I saw all of them sitting on the wheelchairs, moving around, and having fun. It was as if they had arrived at a picnic spot where they are sharing a jackpot winning. I felt real joy inside me. When I decided to leave, one of the kids grabbed my legs. I tried to free my leg, legs gently, but the kid stared at my face and held my legs tightly. So I bent down and asked the child, do you need something else? The answer this child gave me not only made me happy, but it also changed my attitude to life completely. The child said, I want to remember your face so that when I meet you in heaven, I will be able to recognize you and thank you once again. Showing compassion towards others will go a long way. Someone said, love and compassion is the new evangelism tool you can use to reach others for Christ. It's hard to be a follower of God and not have compassion at the same time. We are to love mercy. And lastly, we are to recognize God in humbleness. We are to recognize God in humbleness. Walk humbly with God. This means that as we walk, as we make progress, as we proceed and succeed in our lives, we are to remain humble. Meaning, we are to live carefully so that pride will not creep in our lives. When one is humble, he is not focusing on himself and not thinking as if the successes and the achievements that he has are by his own goodness and by his own doing. God wants us to walk humbly with God. I like the preposition with because it shows being together with someone and it, it implies coordination. That as you progress, as you go, as God blesses you with wealth and success, don't forget to move forward with God. Don't leave Him behind. Walk carefully, humbly, always remember and recognize God, that it is God who has blessed you with everything you have. As followers of God, we ought to be careful that pride will not set in our hearts. Let us continue to walk humbly in the ways of God and to recognize Him in everything that we have and do in life. We see that God's expectation from His people is not really a matter of what we can do for Him or how much we can give Him. But what is good for Him more than anything else is our faithful, obedient heart towards Him. A faith that is seen through our daily living, that we do justly, we love mercy, and we walk humbly 
with God. We are not expected to be perfect, but we are to try our best to live our lives according to His ways. In the end, we see this confrontation between God and His people as a very good wake-up call from God. One that is also appropriate in our time today so that we, as followers of God, can respond and align our lives in a way that meets the expectations of our Lord. Perhaps as you listen to this, maybe God is also personally speaking to you today. Let me just encourage you again and again that God is gracious and He is always waiting for us to turn to Him, not with our money and possessions, but with all our hearts. As one famous hymn clearly expresses the effect when we choose to walk with the Lord, yes, it is not easy to trust and obey the Lord, but that is what we are called to do if we are to be happy in Jesus. Friends, may Micah 6, 1-8 be God's message to all of us. May our faith be so evident in the way we live and treat others. May we resolve to live as God desires, to live in righteousness, to treat others with love and kindness, and to recognize God in humbleness, because then and only then will we be able to fully experience and realize the joy and contentment that is found when we choose to live according to God's ways. Let us pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. May you empower each one of us, your people, to live as you desire us to live so that we will be able to experience the joy that can only be found in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.